After spending two years as a journalist in Liberia, Ashoka Mokpo went home to the U.S. for a break. But when the Ebola pandemic broke out in West Africa, he returned to cover the story. Ashoka lasted a little more than a month before contracting the virus and becoming the story. Thanks again for doing this. Appreciate it. No and, problem. Uh, I thought we could start like uh, by putting us back to where you were. Was it six years ago? Or, oh, or seven? God, has, it been, has it been that long now? Uh, so 2014, it's 2021. Yeah, just yeah. about six and a half years. Shit. Wow. Life goes by fast, even, you know, it's good. It's good to be alive, but it it flies. It's true. So you were in Liberia. Were you in Monrovia or elsewhere? Which period? Um, When uh, in, in 2014. In 2014, do you mean during the Ebola crisis? We yes. Was report before that. Yeah, I was based out of Monrovia. Um, I would go to rural parts of the country pretty frequently for my work. But once the um, Ebola thing got underway, we were sort of stuck in Monrovia after that. And then I actually went home. I'd been in in Liberia for just over two years at that point. So I was basically out of my fill and needed a little bit of time back in the States, spend some time with my friends, blah, 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 whatever. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. And I wound up coming back to report on the crisis once it started to get in full swing. So when I left in May, I think it was something like that, May or June, it was sort of like happening, but it was a real slow burn. Like, you know, it was sort of more like, oh, there's a couple of cases up in Guinea, but it's probably going to be okay. It's just, you know, everybody's a little nervous. It wasn't actually until midsummer that things got kind of like supercharged. So, so you came back at what point in 2014? I went back to Monrovia in, in the, the end of August. Okay. So somewhere around like, yeah, last week of August, somewhere first week of September. I can't can't remember exactly. That's fine. Yeah. And and did you think twice about it, or did people tell you you were crazy, or no one had any idea? Of course, I did. I mean, it was it was insane. It was like front page news everywhere in the world. Liberia melting down, Ebola crisis raging. It's definitely. um, I thought about it a lot, and I wouldn't say that I asked for advice because, you know. It's a pretty simple decision of what you would tell someone in that position, but I, you know, I don't know. I just, I just made the decision. I just decided to do it. So I did. And do you know, uh, how long were you there uh, once you returned when you started getting symptoms? I was there for about a month reporting before I got symptomatic. So I think I always like mess up the specific day, but I think I started to get sick on October 1st. Okay. So there was like about a four week period, four and a half week period that I was reporting for that before that happened. 
And so that's where things really start to accelerate. So you start I mean, to show what, symptoms what, and what happens then? I get sick. Yeah. Um, I go to a doctor's about borders clinic. I tell them I'm feeling pretty bad. Uh, you guys want to jab me with a needle and do a test? And we did. And womp womp. And then at some point, it's a, big, it's a long story. It's sort of hard, hard to know. Right. No, but so, so, so that at the clinic, they find that you're positive and, and then do you go into isolation at there? Do you go home? No. How's it work? No, no, no. I mean, well, you know, there's all these like sort of details to it, but, but, uh, so I went to the Doctors Without Borders clinic in Monrovia that had been up to that point, basically like the destination for, I would say probably the majority of people who were getting sick would go to MSF just because it was the biggest. It was kind of perceived to be the most well-staffed, although I, you know, we could talk about that because I actually think that that's not entirely true. Um, and I had had like, you know, I feel bad saying this in public because whatever, but uh, I, I would not have chosen the doctor's top borders clinic if I could have picked where I would have been treated because um, understandably that they, they were prioritizing the safety of their staff uh, to an extent, and I don't want to be like hyperbolic here, but to an extent they were prioritizing their staff safety over the um, potential treatments that they could have given patients. So the like, clearest example of this is that they weren't doing an IV rehydration for patients, whereas in the other clinics in the city they were. So when I got the positive diagnosis back, I w initially was like, okay, well, I got to go to a different clinic. Yeah, like, I don't want to be stuck somewhere that I'm not going to be able to have an IV. And we talked that through. And I think that the government for very good reasons didn't want me to leave the clinic and go somewhere else and so basically it was just like they're like look you're here you know you're very sick you are now contagious you can kill someone so this is where you're going to be and i was not really at the point of wanting to fight that at that point and you know i don't want to like it's so easy to get bogged down there's so much detail to this whole thing but the long and short of it i would say is that uh at that point, I didn't know if I was going to get home. Um, and even, you know, like now to kind of talk about it out loud, it's like, quote unquote, going home and everything that actually wound up happening is like such an incredibly, you know, it's trite to say privilege, but it's also doesn't mean that it's not true. It was, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a white guy from America and I had an expectation and a hope that they were going to evacuate me because that's what happened to some previous people who got sick. But at that point, it wasn't really clear. So I wound up spending about five days in the Doctors Without Borders clinic, uh, packed full of people, sick, dying, um, scared, lots of them, a couple of pretty powerful moments with people in there. Yeah, and sad. And yet, five days is a short time if you're healthy, though. I mean, depending on your depending on your work week, it could be long. But, but in general, it, it, it didn't feel short. No, <laughs> it, felt, it felt long. I mean, long, you're in, long, long. 
Yeah. During the middle oh, of yeah. the pandemic that nobody understood fully and uh-huh. you got it. And then yeah. you were able to reach out to the the consulate or embassy and facilitate or did MSF do that? No, I think like my parents were having, were having a part of that. NBC had a big role. So I just like to kind of fill in some of the gaps at this point, not that this is like relevant necessarily in the conversation that we're having, but I had been working with a crew from NBC for literally about like 48 hours before I started to get symptomatic, which is, I mean, that's, this is a whole, whole other part of the shit show, but um, they were really helpful in terms of like coordinating uh, talking to the right people about what was going to happen to me. Um, yeah, the consulate eventually got in touch with me. I think I'd say about 48 hours after I was admitted to the, to the MSF ward and told me that they were going to almost certainly send a flight to come and pick me up and take me back to the States. And that's what wound up happening, but it took about five days. And you are one of six people, I think, if, if I have it correct, who um, were treated in Western Europe or U.S. for Ebola. Uh, it's more than that. I think it's something like 12. 12? Yeah. There's a couple of people who actually managed to keep it secret, which I have to say, I'm envious of, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're just dealt the deck that you're dealt. And yeah. I, was, I was fortunate. But the media attention was a little bit crazy. Well, yeah. And then you come to the States and, and where, where did you go? Where were you treated? What was the it? University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, which turned out to be a great, incredible place to be treated with. Um, you know, it was, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better place, but I remember being like, why the fuck are they taking me to Nebraska? You know, what, what Nebraska was there. But it turns out that uh, UNMC, U, yeah, UNMC has a, I don't know, I'm going to like botch this if I try to use a medical term. Let's just, they have like a tank for people who are sick with like really crazy shit that they don't really know a lot about. And it's sort of like uh, been designed as a place to like quarantine and, and treat people with really, really viral, you know, contagious illnesses that could be dangerous to the public. And I think for like five years preceding the Ebola outbreak, they had had to really really like sort of fight for their budget because it's expensive. There was a lot of research dollars going into it. It's a little bit like, why are we maintaining this, you know, bio research quarantine facility for X dozens, millions of dollars a year. And so when, when people started getting evac there for treatment, you know, I think it was like scary for people there, but I think there was like also a little bit of a sense for them that they were like, all right, you know, this is our like, okay, you know, put me in I'm ready. Let's do this. So they did a great job, saved my life, honestly. And who knows what would happen if I'd stayed in Liberia. I got sick, really, really, really sick. <laughs> and how does that experience feel like with the absolute craziness that you saw in Liberia? How does it feel looking at the craziness of, of the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I mean, how did, I don't know. Yeah, they're so different, you know. I mean, it's like it's there, there are so many directions that I can take that in, some of which might even feel a little offensive. 
um, I feel less alone now in a weird way that I feel like maybe I should be a bit ashamed of or something. I mean, you know, before coronavirus, like getting really sick with something scary from a foreign country was like something that only happened to like, oh, what were you doing there? You know, it was like, that's a, that's an out there thing. So, you know, I don't want to make this, I would choose not to have the coronavirus pandemic have ever happened, obviously, but there is a sense for me in some way, a little bit of like, oh, people can relate a little bit more with this now. But there's also, you know, all kinds of other dynamics here that I think are like worth talking about. Like there was a lot of, I think, prejudices against librarians that I heard and saw discussed both in the media and just in the popular discourse around Ebola, for example, around like, you know, funerals. Like, why are people doing these funerals in a place where they know that they could get killed um, by whatever killed their loved one? Or are they just stupid or superstitious? They're like breaking into these treatment facilities and pulling people out and setting them free. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of felt like that was some sort of othering experience with, or, or sort of like, um, you know, we're projecting these stereotypes and otherness to West Africans in that period of time of like, oh, well, they're just superstitious or they don't understand science. And now, you know, you look at like what's going on here during the coronavirus pandemic and it's like, I, they actually handled themselves far better than Americans did. And it was a much, much more dangerous illness. I think like what we've learned in America in the past year is that if we were to have an outbreak of an illness that killed 40 to 60% of people who got it, our society would completely break down, completely. You know, so I, I think, I don't know, I'm just sort of like riffing on things that have come up that I've thought about. Um, but the, you know, the main things I just kind of feel like, uh, I don't know, I feel a little bit less isolated, which is sort of funny, I think. Uh, having, having worked on sort of the, the Ebola response and, 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 and seeing the, the COVID um, response, I, I agree a hundred percent. Like, and it strikes me as interesting that COVID's hitting hard, the more industrialized countries. And yet, you know, it's sort of it, it kind of leaving behind and not, there's no sense of, I mean, there are a couple of countries and South Africa has got it pretty bad right now. Um, mm. But, but it's, it's interesting the way this pandemic is played out and how, yeah. you know, lessons that could have been learned weren't. Do you mean lessons that were learned in West Africa that yeah. could have been applied here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's different contexts in some ways too. And I feel like not to sort of disagree with you, but you can. Um, I do think it's it's important to like, at least say that we don't actually know what the extent of the coronavirus spread in Africa is. So South Africa is has a big spike, but I think part of that is because their testing capacity is much more robust than other countries. That said, yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to like fall into this weird thing that people are like, well, when is it going to hit Africa to say that, um, you know, it's been surprising, but it's been so, um, 
controlled there. And it's a really, really positive surprise. I was worried, really worried. Right. And yet other diseases, uh, control has been set back. Uh, you know, tuberculosis, for example, like everything mm -hmm. got redirected, even though it could have just been combined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a super expert on health policy, so yeah. I don't want to open my big mouth and say something dumb here. But um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that the strain that this is putting on resources all over the continent is pretty unfortunate. And then also, you know, I mean, the, the vaccine politics are just going to be like really, really upsetting and horrible. Like, what, do we really, you know, it's not even a matter of when, I think it's if, like, do you, what do we think the likelihood is that we're going to get to like a substantial amount of vaccinations in Nigeria or Congo or Tanzania or something? You know, these are countries that their lives aren't less valuable than ours, but I, you know, it's just, it's sort of like the, I think the pandemic, something in the pandemic that's been, if there is a, I hesitate to call this a silver lining, but if there's been a sort of like value in some way to the pandemic, I think it's, partially that it's like ripping the veneer off of like everything in our society and the way that global politics work and just really showing us who we are. So I don't mean that to sound like a spiel, but I just think it's like worth saying. Well, certainly this is a, this would be the right venue for, for a spiel. Okay. <laughs> Cause it, because it is interesting. It, it's like, and, and I get your point on sort of going through it, going through something and, and it's weird that you've been through it and nobody else has. And, and in some ways you're like that charity case that you never wanted to be. And, and everyone yeah. accommodates you for that. Sure. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. It's definitely a thing. Yeah. Where yeah. does that take you next? Your focus as a reporter um, yeah. has been yeah. human rights to a large extent, or is that just yeah. recently? I would say that I have a kind of dual impulse in some way that on one hand, I really like to craft, I really find myself um, compelled by craftsmanship, whether it's like writing or shooting footage, putting documentaries together. There's that sort of like, um, like passion for just like the tactile experience of reporting. And I think that's like, uh, exists in tandem for me of a very long running feeling of um, commitment for lack of a better word or uh, just, you know, I like shit's fucked up, you know, human beings have value, planet has value. And I, so yeah, I, I'm rambling a little bit, but most of my reporting has been about, I mean, for lack of a better word, yeah, yeah either human rights, migrants rights, um, the way that the environment and the exploitation of it either makes people's lives better or harms them. So there's that sort of strain of I'm not going to say idealism because I don't feel stupid enough to think that we're like, you know, I'm, I'm a realist, 
but I'm also very angry. <laughs> so I think that's like made, made a mark on the way that I do my work. <laughs> and how does uh, anger intersect with the, the survivor part of you? Is that, uh, oh, does yeah. it, does be surviving such a, a crazy time and, and crazy disease, does that fuel the anger and, and motivate your reporting or is it, take the edge no. off it sometimes i don't really feel like there's a big like pre ebola post ebola thing with at least that part of how i approach the world uh, I, I will say that it um simultaneously and i've said this before but it simultaneously made me much 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 more conscious of the humanity of people who are on the other side of my camera lens or notebook having you now you know, in some sense, being that person, I think that that's like, a, that's left a mark for me of doubling down on the need to be very conscientious and generous and, and caring about people that I write about, because you can really take a lot away from people with um, turning in into a subject of journalism. And then the other part of that, and this is probably the more like relatable part is just like, I'm, I'm more careful now. And that's a much bigger part of my approach to journalism at this point is I, I think of stories more as what, what can I tell that will move someone emotionally or help them to understand something that they didn't understand before. And I'm much less in this juvenile frame of mind of just like something fucked up is happening. Let me go as close to it as I can. Cause that I, I don't feel like I was insanely reckless when I look back on it. You know, I kind of did just about like what all the other reporters were doing and in some cases less to be frank with you. But I used to feel invincible and now I don't. And, I, and in some sense, I actually think that's a gift because I feel like it's, it's broadened the way that I approach my work in a way that I'm grateful. I think that sounds like it's like a, um, you know, like a nice little fairy tale or something, but it's true. It really, it really is true. That that left a mark for me, for me, and it really shifted, you know, the way that I kind of conceive of and think of journalism. Especially if you're interviewing people who are exceptionally vulnerable, who have been through the ringer and and and, and seen the worst of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's being both delicate and, and being both and protective of mm -hmm. like how much identity to reveal and, and and whether that'll have impacts. I was not prepared on any level for just how much of your identity and your relationship with yourself gets lost once you become the subject of intense media coverage, and. Um, you know, even since then, I've had these experiences where I've done a piece on someone or I've written something where someone is a main character and, you know, everything's fine and they're really excited about it. And we have these like, you know, multiple interviews, we spend a lot of time with each other. And then when the article actually comes out, it's often a real moment of horror for people because they see themselves portrayed on the page in a way that doesn't really ca 
captured the full range of who they are. Nobody sees themselves as a victim alone. Nobody sees themselves as a um, representative of some social issue. You know, we're complicated beings. And this is, I try to be as nuanced as I can when I write about people, but you know, to do journalism, you kind of have to, like, I'm going to be frank, you you are in some sense using people to tell stories. And the purpose behind those stories can either be your career or it could be, you know, a real sense of, um, you know, that you think it's important for people to know more about whatever it is they're going through because it affects a big group of people. But this is a circuitous way of me saying that my experience of having my ownership over myself completely taken away from me has made me much more sympathetic to what power I have as a writer and and what responsibility that brings to be really thoughtful with people about like, you know, this is going to come out. It's going to be hard. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just an subconscious kind of thing but i just uh that you know it's I've, I've said this to people a bunch but it's really true that actually the media coverage part of the whole thing was a lot harder for me than the illness itself the illness itself was like a little bit of like it was awful you know i'm not going to downplay the realities of having the ebola virus it's a fucking shit show but um the total disconcerting and um confusion and loss of control that came in the aftermath of just being on the newspaper, being interviewed, you know, you're, you're, I mean, fuck man, I've been in a quarantine tank for like three weeks and then I was getting quoted in major news outlets and I go back and I look at some of those things right now and I'm like, I, I was not in a position to be in front of a camera. I shouldn't have done that, you know, but, but you don't really think that. You just think like, oh, people are asking me to do this and you know, NBC paid for my treatment. So I have to sit down and do this interview the day I leave, leave the unit. But I look back on that guy. I'm like, that guy needed to like, needed some space for like a couple months, you know? Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about, I don't know if that was an answer to your question at all. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, I, I think about, you know, your point about the the folks on the other side of the camera and i think about um um the one trip i took into the liberian countryside there was one guy um it was a working with a, a reporter to look at how um industrial palm oil was uh basically forcibly relocating um some villages um you know we came in and there was, you know, there was an impact. And the minute we left, um, the company and the local authorities arrested some of the people we talked to. And there was one guy um, apparently who fled. And then apparently like a follow up crew came. And um, a couple years ago, it came out like this one guy had to keep fleeing into the bush like three or four times for like, you know, months at a time to just because efforts to like save his community and their way of life basically yeah. you know it was either someone had to talk to the press and shine a light 
or no one talked and even worse things happened? I mean, we got to do it, you know, I think like both in terms of the subject and the interviewer, there's a symbiotic relationship that at its best is an acknowledgement of mutual debasement on some level in order to provide a service for others. But that doesn't make the debasement any less uncomfortable. And by, you know, obviously, I don't want to claim that there's a um, even playing field, there's obviously a power imbalance, but there's a certain level of uh, contrived intimacy that you create with people. I, th th this is a whole other, you know, conversation about like representation and the power of the camera and the power of the word and, you know, whether we're really hearing from people and who they actually are when they talk to us or whatever, or whether we're just like cutting a little chunk out of them, pulling it out wider to fill in a bigger picture about them. But the bottom line is that, um, yeah, I, I think it's a really intense thing to be covered. And I, I'll tell you a little story that I think is kind of funny. It's like, I had um, a really good friend of mine. I'm still super close with her. Like, you know, we're, she's my buddy. She's a great photographer. Uh, super fun, great sense of humor. I adore her. And when I was in the unit on day two or something like that, you know, everybody, if we're just being honest right now, especially like the people who were based in Liberia at that time, like everybody was on a little bit of a hustle. It was like suddenly the entire media had descended upon this country that like we had been investing ourselves in and spending time in or were from. And, it, you know, as a person who is a journalist, that sort of felt like, okay, this is a professional opportunity for me and I kind of have to grab it. And uh, one of my friends had been working with uh, a really famous photographer and she texted me on day two. She was like, listen, uh, you know, we both think it would be like super cool if you could just like jump out of the tent and throw a thumbs up to the camera, maybe like, you know, like wave to us or something. I was like, this motherfucker is trying to fucking like work me. <laughs> I was like, you must be out of your mind. You think I'm coming out of the tent to get a picture taken of me? Fucking hell. <laughs> but, you know, it was funny. It's like, I, it was like, a, again, you know, it reinforced it for me. I, that was actually a really intense moment for me at the time. Like, I can laugh about it now, but at the time, it was like horrifying. I was like, holy shit, I am the story. Like, like there was suddenly, there was a, a, a gap. Um, you know, there was just as thin as a piece of orange netting that had turned me from a member of that tribe to its prey. And yeah, I don't know. It was just the dynamic. It's just interesting, I guess. I don't think she did anything wrong. And I think that journalism is important and crucial. And I'm not gonna use the word noble, but it can be valuable. Um, but I think it, also has a certain element to it of um, taking. And so I, I guess I'm just, I think about it a lot. That's something I do think about that I've, I've brought into my professional sort of world, you know? It was really disconcerting. Like that was a moment where I was like, you know, I'm okay, I'm not me anymore. So who am I? I don't know. <laughs> There's someone who gets- now I What's that? 
that now I feel more like me. You know, I'm reporting again. I'm like, I'm more sort of in my groove, but there was a little period of time that it was pretty gnarly. But you got knocked off your path. And then no matter how much you try and get back to you get back to it. You're not, you're never going to be on the same path because you have a completely different perspective. No arguments there. True. Who knows what would happen if that hadn't happened. I'm happy with where my life is right now. So I can't be complain, I guess. And, um, I, I learned, I learned a lot from all of that, but, um, yeah, you know, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I don't really know what I've actually pulled out of it. I had those sort of pre-camp answers at first when I did recover, where it was like, well, I thought about what's really important in life. And that is true. Um, like a lot of shit just fell away. And it was just like the core things. And I was like, okay, this is what's important to me. This is what I regret. This is what I feel like I'm going to lose. Um, you know, and then there's also, uh, that kind of like die, you know, I don't know. Um, I feel like pretty proud on some level or um, I'm more aware of my own strength in a way of feeling like, okay, I went through this and it was fucking brutal, but I, I pulled my, you know, I pulled myself back up. And this is what survivors of illness do is we, we're just confronted. It's like, I don't even think it's a choice. It's just life, you know, like people are so resilient human beings are so strong. We go through so much pain in our lives. We face impossible circumstances and mine were so minor compared to other people, but I like, there was no choice, you know? I had to kind of like stretch and breathe and work and get strong again. But all that is just to say that like, then there's another level where I keep thinking like, I'm supposed to have some big takeaway that I can say like, oh, this is how I changed or, this is what life means to me now that I'm a survivor. But like, I, you know, honestly, no, nah, that's not really, it's like, if you stub your toe really bad, do you learn something or do you just go through the experience of stubbing your toe? That's a little bit how I feel about this. And I don't love talking about it either. So this is one of the first times I think I have in years. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I just rambled for, 45 minutes. <laughs> I think that's the point of a podcast though. Yeah, I guess that's true. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a good interviewer. Um, I hope this was helpful. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Life is full of unexpected, really, really unfortunate things that you never think can happen to you. And it is so hallmarky and trite and corny, but you have got to be in your life and grateful for it as much as you can every instant that you're here because it can just go. And, uh, you know, that's like either a huge horror or it can be something a little bit more raw and opening. I guess I don't want to say good, you know, being, you know, death is, is tragic and sad and painful, but there's a certain quality to it. I think when you face it or when you see other people face it, 
where like a lot of the bullshit just falls away and you're like oh this is actually much more simple than i ever thought that it was it's like you're just we're alive we're just alive for a while and what are we going to do with that because when it's done it's so normal it's crazy that it happens like it's crazy that we're alive and then we die but then on the other side of that like it's just it's just over and the world moves on so i don't know i don't know what to do with that just keep on living no choice that's what i found yeah i want to ask you about the situation i think we have sure. like five or we could do 10 minutes here mm-hmm. so we, how old were you when you got diagnosed uh so i was first diagnosed in 2014 um i had a there's like a lymph node that popped up by itself kind of swollen and um uh kind of knew it didn't look the way it was supposed to and uh my doctor at the time basically bull rushed me through all the diagnostics i was diagnosed with lymphoma went through four months of treatment um it was rough but not crazy rough and um so then and then i was given the green light and basically went back and, and then you know five to six months later uh, i was like what the hell did i just go through and then um fast forward a bit to um 2018 and uh I was running and I thought I tweaked my meniscus and in my right knee, but it was weird and, and um, it kind of didn't go away, but didn't not. And, and uh, it was the first of like a nerve damage, I think. And then in April of 2019, I started to get like ridiculous amounts of pain in my hip and then um, my uh, left foot gradually just went dead. And uh, my oncologist said, you are all fine. You have no more cancer. And I'm like, okay. And then I saw a neurologist after a neurologist and they're like, do a bunch of tests. You don't have cancer, do a bunch of tests. You don't have cancer. And then I went to neurologist number three. He's like, you definitely have cancer. We just need to get the right tests. And uh, so then diagnosed finally in june of 2020 and went through five months of treatment that was pretty harsh and then uh, been trying to recover and pt in the basement about an hour hour and a half to try and get back my legs every day must have been really scary there it was crazy yeah it's you know and how old are you? Uh, 53 now. Okay. okay. And a healthy guy, like running yeah. a lot, play way too much ultimate Frisbee. And in fact, the last <laughs> thing I did sports wise was, was win a 15 over. Uh, it's the North American championships for, folks who are uh, over 50 and it was it was fun and it was like my dad was real sick at the time and and it was the very last thing that he got excited about before he passed and you know it was, and then all of a sudden like you know trap door opened up and you know you just you fall through a pit and you just wonder when you're going to hit the end you have no idea 
you could sort of see, but you just have no idea just the depths of how it hurts your, your family, but it's not your fault, but it still takes its toll. Yeah, because you feel like it's like your fault or something, or you feel like it's like you're the, the cause of their pain, even though the reason that they're in so much pain is that they love you. Yeah, and, 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 you, know, and you are, but it's not your fault, but you know, yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> yeah, life is pretty cruel, huh? It could be, but you know, life is also, you only got what you got. So you just gotta, you gotta go with what makes you happy and you gotta pursue it. You know, I kind of try and impress that on my daughter. Like, you know, just, you know, don't focus on what's practical, focus on chasing your dreams and everything will line up behind it. How do you keep yourself from feeling um, wronged? Does that make sense? That it question? does. It totally, you know, and I think, um, I think there are times, especially at the end of the day when I'm tired and, and, you know, like I kind of let my guard down and the walls come down and, you know, I'm tired and I get like super depressed and, and just like really frustrated that this has happened to me and my life has changed and I might not ever run again. And I'm like, I need to, you know, and, and then I recognize that there is absolutely nothing I could do about this set of feelings except go bury myself in a book. Totally. That's like sort of, I feel like it's kind of the thing about illness and mortality is that like, you know, we're so hardwired to think that we can figure shit out and that we could like get to some place of like, oh, well, you know, here's why this is okay. And like a lot of stuff just like it's not, you know, it's like it just doesn't, there's no way to get yourself to a part of like holding it. I, I you know, I'm just thinking like I went, you know, this is like pretty hard for me, I think for about, about a year after, after I got sick and there was really no way around that, that feeling, you know, it's like, you kind of just, I think that's why I was trying to say the thing about like life is cruel. It's like we, we, but we're so strong within that, you know, like we find ways to carry that unfairness, but it doesn't, it just doesn't always feel like it makes sense, I guess. And it doesn't have to, and, and, and it, and yet you have to celebrate what little you have, you know, and, and you're gifted if you have the space and the freedom to do so. It sounds like you have a lot. I have ridiculous amount to be grateful for i i am been married celebrated 25th wedding anniversary a week and a half after a bone marrow transplant wow congratulations that's life huh yeah <laughs> that's what it's about yeah you know it's funny i was like uh thinking the other day I, i'm a, so i was raised buddhist mm -hmm. and the first thing that the buddha realize when you got enlightened they say is that life is suffering and when you're like buddhist that's the first thing that you learn the four noble truths life is suffering and then it's like you spend the rest of your life like not you know it's like well <laughs> it won't be that but what if i if i do this what if i do that 
and it's, it's like i don't know man there's and it's not it's not like it doesn't mean that life is terrible it's just that there's like a, an underlying kind of pain in life somehow that we can decide how we carry it i guess but it doesn't go away Well, I gotta actually run. I'm like, I, I'm 10 minutes late for a meeting. I'd, I'd love to keep talking. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate it. Appreciate you turning the uh, the lens around or, or microphone or whatever the, the podcast around and uh, appreciate, appreciate your sharing your perspective. Like I said, it's easier for me, <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, I also feel like I, I you know, I do feel a little bit like I'm in a club now, you know, and it's a hard club to be in. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. I wish you luck, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And let's stay in touch. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving, a series of conversations with people who have gone through all sorts of trauma and disease. Not everyone needs the services of a national biohazard medical unit and laboratory, though.